This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 264. Today we speak with Dr. Scott Oliphant about his book, Reasons for Faith, and the relationship between philosophy and theology. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, through weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 264. My name is Camden Busey. I'm recording out of Wheaton, Illinois. And we have with us a great group and a great subject. Let me introduce to you today, our regular, we have Jared Oliphant, who is Regional Coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary. He's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back, Jared. It's been a little while since you've been on the program. It's good to have you. Yeah, good to be back, Camden. Thanks. I'm actually I'm in Glenside, PA, so I'm back uh, in in that general region. I switch regions. Well, for the for now, for, for the for now, yeah, <laughs> yeah. understood. Uh, we're also very pleased to welcome back to Christ the Center. Uh, he's been on a number of times before, and we're uh, very uh, ready to have him on again. We're going to talk about uh, one of his books. We here we have Dr. K. Scott Oliphant, who is Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome back, Dr. Oliphant. It's wonderful to have you on again. Happy New Year, Camden. Yeah. Good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. It's uh third episode of the year, I believe, if I'm correct. And this isn't episode 200, is it? Because no. I was hoping. <laughs> 264. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I guess. I think you were on happen. 240, the last yeah, one. Yeah, I don't think I, I made it on the 200. I was no. just trying to remember. You just missed a gross. Or yeah. two, no, you That's just missed right. two, a double gross, I guess. Right. That's what it was, yeah. Who was it on 200? I'm trying to remember. Oh. Let's see who you, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. <laughs> <laughs> that episode got a lot of downloads. We'll just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously it wasn't me. <laughs> I don't think it was the person that got at the downloads, but uh, anyway. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it seems like all of our even numbers. So I don't know what's going to happen in 300, but 100 and 200 happened to uh, get us a lot of email. So. Well, 300 is going to have to be tipped in honor of the movie, right? There's no other way you could. <laughs> we'll have him do an allegory of Leonidas and yeah. how Leonidas uh, relates to, um, I don't yeah, know, the- Pauline theological themes. Of- and, the theological interpretation of <laughs> Leonidas. Well, now that you've planted that seed, I'm sure that's going to come to fruition <laughs> probably in October is, is my guess All when right. 300 will come around. Nice. Well, we're not there yet, but today we are going to be speaking about a book that should have been spoken about a long time ago. It's just too bad we didn't do Christ the Center. When this book was published, but we have in front of us, regardless, Reasons for Faith, uh, Philosophy in the Service of Theology by Dr. Oliphant. It was published in 2006 by PNR Publishing. Uh, just a fantastic book. We're going to be speaking about philosophy and theology and apologetics and uh, related issues. But before we do that, I should see if there's anything that we need to mention. Jared, any uh, news or updates that we need to mention before we get started? I don't um, have anything on my plate. Not really. Um, yeah. I, I'll be at the Desiring God conference in February. If anybody's out for that, would love to say hey. But that's kind of the, the biggest thing on the radar right now in terms of yeah. travel. That's yeah. great. That's great news. And uh, yeah. they're doing good things up there. Time of transition. Uh, now John Piper's going to be, uh, well, has, I guess, uh, stepped down from the preaching ministry. So mm-hmm. um, good things coming up there. The, the guys, last time we talked to them, seemed pretty Excited about this uh, time of transition and these new opportunities. So we uh, we pray that that works out, and hopefully you have a good trip. 
Yeah, thanks. And um, not to uh, publicize a competing podcast or anything, but uh, Greg <laughs> Beal is going to be doing, you know, they have this Authors on the Line podcast um, that they do. And uh, Greg Beal is going to be talking actually about uh, marriage um, from his New Testament biblical theology at some point. So, um, yeah, look for that at some point. I'm sure it'll be publicized. Oh, sure. I listened to some of those. So that'll be, that'll be great to hear. We'll look forward to hearing Dr. Beal on that program. Um, in terms of uh, the new year and whatnot, of course, I do want to say thanks to everyone who supported us uh, at the end of the year in 2012 and everyone who continues to support us here in 2013. Uh, we had a great uh, year end, and I want to thank everybody uh, for their support of everything that uh, we do here at Reformed Forum. If you'd like to partner with us, please visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate to help us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. Again, thanks uh, from everyone here at Reform Forum, and thanks for helping us do what we do here in this particular program, Christ the Center. Well, I am uh, just uh, delighted to be speaking about this book, uh, Reasons for Faith, Philosophy, and the Service of Theology. I uh, purchased this book even before coming to seminary and worked my way through it, so uh, I got to read a lot of uh, philosophical formulas and learn all about metaphysics and epistemology even though I didn't have anyone to explain it to me <laughs> or didn't have a foundation in AP 101 or anything else to build, to uh, build off of. But I worked through it and it proved to be very um, useful and uh, it's a fruitful exercise. So it's, uh, we're going to have a good time opening this book up and discussing things today. Now, Dr. Oliphant, as we uh, approach the subject of philosophy and theology or just the general subject of apologetics, because when we talk about philosophy and theology, usually we end up talking about apologetics. Um, what do you think the role of, of the two are? Do you think they're in competition with one another? Do you think they're entirely uh, different disciplines unrelated to one another? Do you think that philosophy is really a variant of theology? What, what is your approach to this? And, and maybe you could use that as an opportunity if, if you see fit to, to describe why uh, you wrote this book. I think that one of the reasons I, I was I was interested in this is is uh, because in, in apologetics, particularly, you have a significant interface of philosophy and theology um, along the way, and and that that tends to be the case in Reformed theology generally, just because of the way that theology has um, has moved uh, through history. But one one of the things that I um, noticed in my in my own interest in in apologetics um, is that there is um, at least in the current climate current context there is a, a, a battle going on between philosophy and theology um, and what I mean by that is there are um, a good number of philosophers who are doing a lot of theology in the name of philosophy and and because they're doing it in the name of philosophy they they uh they they refuse maybe unconsciously maybe self-consciously but they refuse um to um to even access uh, biblical revelation in order to do that right so um one of the things i, I was seeing is that there's a, there's a good bit of influence out there of uh, philosophy of religion which is kind of the the newfangled term for natural theology and there's a good bit of interest out there in that, and it seems to me to be the case that 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 is being done more and more without even um, 
this is a bit of an overstatement because there are exceptions always, but but this is certainly the majority, by far the majority, without even asking the question of whether or not biblical revelation ought to come into play in these discussions. And that, that to me, is, um, is uh, detrimental, uh, to put it mildly, detrimental to, to theology and, and to, to Christian growth and, and, and holiness and sanctification, all those kinds of things. So I, I have, in my own experience, seen um, Christians uh, who have um, gone in uh, what, what I take to be a very um, erroneous and difficult uh, direction because of the influence that philosophy has had on them. Hmm. On the other hand, um, on the other hand, we we admit as as Christians, and and particularly in in our discipline of of doing theology and doing apologetics, we admit that 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 can't be done without um, philosophy at all, because many of the terms and uh, ideas that are now embedded in much of our theological discussion uh, have their roots in in philosophical discussion, sure. and 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 that's a good thing. That's that's not bad. But if, if we're going to use um, philosophical language, which I think is uh, wholly uh, warranted in, in our theology and in our apologetics, if we're going to use that, we need to be more self-conscious about what is entailed by that language so that we make sure to root out any, um, any faulty presuppositions that might uh, come in uh, through the back door. So, so what I wanted to try to do, and I, I'm not doing anything original in this, in this basic um, uh, structure here, what I wanted to try to do was to, to, to argue again um, that, um, that philosophy, it's, if it's going to be done properly, needs to be done in the service of theology. What, what I mean by that is it has to have its foundation and its impetus in the truth of Scripture, and then from that foundation and that impetus, then to, to do its work. Um, and, you know, Van Til makes a statement someplace, I can't remember where it was, um, but he makes a statement that um, Christian philosophy is just Christian theology with, with different terms, different terminology. Um, and, and I think that's, um, that's foundationally right, although um, philosophy can, can move into areas and, and uh, begin to uh, pursue uh, areas that that theology wouldn't want to get involved in. So it's philosophy is going to be a bit broader than that in some ways. But um, you know, I, I think he was basically right on that in, in terms of the basic um, uh, topics that philosophy wants to cover, which are typically three: metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. And and if philosophy is going to delve into those three areas: metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Then it needs to have its foundation in Scripture, and then, and then having its foundation in Scripture, then it can it can do its work properly, and I think make make real progress. And I also think that theology can benefit greatly from from the thinking of of solidly uh, Christian philosophy. Uh, theology has benefited from the thinking of of pagan philosophy because of um, of God's common grace and, mm-hmm. and people's. Uh, uh, um, implanted knowledge of God. So there, there has been benefit already. But um, see that, you know, that the, the bottom line problem is if you don't get Bantil so that you're sufficiently critical of the foundations, then there's going to be a great danger, an emphasis there on a great danger, 
of um, of trying to synthesize the one with the other, and that's when theology gets into trouble. Is when you try to bring the two together without um, without thinking critically about the foundations that are involved in that. That's there, there's always going to be a collision and a clash when that mm-hmm. happens, and and that's uh, my my concern. My primary concern is that Christians who are interested in philosophy, which I think is a very good thing be interested in it from a theological, a solidly grounded theological reformed perspective. And and if that's the case, then you can do your philosophy in a way that I think will be greatly beneficial. But um, you can count on one hand the number of people who are doing that at this <laughs> point in time. And, and I think that I think that says uh, that says volumes about sure uh, what's happening in, in both disciplines. You know, it it's difficult enough just to define what philosophy is, even within the walls or the halls of philosophical departments or philosophy departments in universities. Um, one basic definition that has been given in the past is just the search for essences. But then there are also contemporary philosophers and people that would reject the existence of essences. And so you end up with, uh, in some quarters, definition of philosophy that's so broad and it's basically just critical thought about whatever subject you may be studying. So you could have a philosophy of science, you could have a philosophy of computers uh, and technology. And so th- these terms are, are slippery, uh, even at the get-go. Um, yeah. And so relating them is going to be even even more tricky. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And, and I, I think, see, one of the reasons I, I stick with the kind of three basic categories right. is, uh, is because I think that's where... Um, it, it, you know, to put it this way, that's kind of safe territory. Yeah, uh, yeah. Somebody wants to say to me, "Well, isn't there a philosophy of grocery stores or a <laughs> gas stations?" I would say, "Well, you can, you know, why don't you try writing on that, and, and we'll see." But, but, but <laughs> the bottom line, I think, is that when, whenever um, people want to ask about the nature of ultimate reality, yeah. Uh, which which is a kind of standard question in philosophy. Then you're dealing with metaphysics, but but you, you can see immediately that you're also into into heavy theological terrain. Yeah, necessarily, exactly. And yeah. and if people want to ask about the nature of knowledge. You're you're into a philosophical question, but again, you, you've got heavy theological substance behind that, or you should have. And if you don't, then you're going to be spinning your wheels. And then in ethics, of course, that's obvious nature, right and wrong. Mm-hmm. But one. The reasons I wanted to write this, I, I say in the beginning that the book is meant to be an apologetic, and and really what I what I what I decided to do, and and um, you know in, anyone who reads the book will see all the things that were undone that haven't been done and could be done. But what I wanted to do um, in, in the book was to set forth a, a kind of commendation of of uh, Christianity as a philosophical basis for the discipline itself that has necessarily theological roots and, and, and a foundation, a theological foundation. So I, I sort of take for granted, um, I, you know, I, I put it this way again generally, but I sort of take for granted that philosophy has basically failed at its task for about 4,000 years. Mm. In um, you know, and I, and I use a quotation uh, there from from a, uh, an introductory book on metaphysics, where the author, who is writing this introduction and who himself is uh, an expert in metaphysics and well known in the area, but the author himself at the beginning says, uh, you know, after four thousand years, there's no established body of facts available to us 
in order to begin to um, to work through our discipline. And he and he's frustrated by this. He says, I don't know why that is, because it's not the case in other sciences, but it's certainly the case in metaphysics that there's no established body of facts. Well, that, you know, in a sense, that's that's exactly right. And and so the the critical question to ask is why why not? Why why is there? Well he says, I don't know why, but maybe one of the reasons is because philosophy steadfastly, again generally speaking, steadfastly refuses to begin its inquiry uh, from the foundation and basis of biblical revelation. And, and, and so what I wanted to do is say, okay, the, the opposite has already been the case. In other words, the contrary has, shown to be, has already been shown to be a failure. So now let's, let's come in. Let's put forth a kind of positive approach to thinking about these things and see if we can't kind of get the ball rolling on a, on a Christian philosophical approach that has... Mm-hmm. Uh, the theology as a foundation. I've mentioned this before, but um, Hendrik Stoker, in his essay in the Van Til Festschrift in Jerusalem and Athens, he has the first essay there reconnoitering the, the theory of knowledge of Cornelius Van Til. He sort of writes it uh, as a letter um, and, and begins to talk about Van Til's um, epistemology and the way that's laid out. And I think Stoker does a nice job of articulating both the um, the similarities and the relationship and some of the distinctions and differences between philosophy and theology. And, and he basically says, you know, I'm summarizing, it's, an, it's a nice article to get your hands on, but basically says to, to Van Tilly, he says, I, I'm with you all the way, but now, given what you say, the way he puts it is, given the vertical, let's turn right and think about the horizontal. Yeah. And and. And uh, Van Til, you know, in, in, a, in a long essay that Stoker writes, Van Til writes one paragraph, and he says, hey, that's a good idea. Go for it. <laughs> he says, that's your field. That's not my field, so go at it. And, and I, think that, I think that's exactly right. I, I, I agree with, with Stoker on, on the structure of that. I mean, I, you know, I would tweak a few things, but that the foundation of philosophy in the Word of God is biblical revelation— and and if you begin there, then you can do your philosophy. Then you can bring all the tools of philosophy to bear. But see what what philosophers want to say is when we do philosophy of religion, some of them want to say it is illegitimate right. to to um, inquire into biblical revelation because now we're doing theology. But to me, that's such a false and superficial. That's, that's something a Christian can't do. Then yeah, then by definition, no faithful Christian can do philosophy of religion. That's right, and 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 yet, then the philosopher will write an article on "Can God Exist?" or "Is there such a thing as miracles?" or "What about life after death?" I mean, the, the, you know, the, the volumes in our library on philosophy of religion are full of those kinds of essays, and yet they'll write these things: "Can God exist? Is there is resurrection possible? Are there miracles?" They'll write these things and say we cannot um, refer to biblical revelation. Well, then if you can't then what you're saying is, let me just put it crassly, that those of us who read your articles have to trust your brain on this and the philosophical tools that you bring to bear, and you're asking me to trust you, and that's not worth reading, in my opinion. Mm. So what, what you want to do is, if you're going to ask those questions, is consult biblical revelation, say, what does God have to say about this? And now, given that, how do we, get, how do we begin to think about these areas? Uh, so philosophy of religion or natural theology has got to have its foundation in special revelation. And that's how philosophy can be in the service of theology. That's that's how it's done rightly, I think. Now, you've mentioned only a hand—well, you've mentioned that there are only a handful of 
people doing uh, philosophical inquiry uh, from a, a faithful position, you know, we would we would want to see somebody from a Reformed epistemology, uh, somebody that's that's uh, working out of a confessional standpoint, ideally. But why are there so few people that are are working in, in these philosophical areas uh, from such a confessional position? Well, I think that's a really um, that's a really a wide and a deep <laughs> yeah to ponder, and I, I, I'm not pretending here. When I when I respond to you that this is the answer, but let me let me try to put it this way: um, Roman Catholic philosophers are very good at incorporating their Catholicism into their philosophical discussions. They do it unapologetically. They do it routinely. They do it explicitly. And and I think the reason they do that is because they understand their identity in relation to their own task. Their identity is, I, I am a, I'm a Roman Catholic, and that has to inform everything that I do. Mm. Now, when you, when you shift that over to Protestants and, and begin to think about that, in the evangelical world, there's no identity there. I mean, you know, I'm not meaning to be um, pejorative here. I just think, you know, evangelical is not an identity. It's a moniker you put on uh, when you don't mm-hmm. know exactly what moniker to put there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's nebulous enough. It, so you, you've got a kind of neutrality assumed in, in, in a Protestant context that's not assumed in a Catholic context. And then you, com- you combine with that a kind of um, anti-confessional spirit out there. Again, so, sometimes because of a, you know, a lack of um, education or, you know, people just, I'm, I'm not saying that people have, you know, that it's an explicit rejection, but you know, confessional theology is not the majority opinion, and, and, and so you combine that with the doing of, of philosophy so, so that an evangelical who does philosophy will almost by definition presuppose neutrality. And once you begin to do that, then you are, you know, you, you're, you're ready and set for a, a syncretistic view of, of, of your two disciplines of philosophy and theology at best, if not a separation of the two. Um, so you begin to talk about philosophy in a philosophical way, in a way that the guild will recognize and and will affirm, and you you sort of uh, check your theology at the door. Or if you bring in your theology, it has to be brought in in a way that presupposes a kind of uh, natural theology or philosophy of religion idea. And and so there 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 there's not going to be part of what I try to argue in in reasons for faith. There's not going to be. Um, a full-orbed Christian philosophy, unless it comes from a full-orbed Reformed theology, that to me that's that's basic um, to, to to everything else I want to say. Mm. So there being few people doing this, at least for now, hopefully we can motivate people to do this and that they remain faithful to the task. Uh, but this book did come out in two thousand six. Um, at that time, what did you see as a as a gap in, apolo- in apologetics literature? That you wanted to fulfill, what was and what was the current state? Do you think of uh, reformed Christians relating to philosophy at that time, and do you think that's changed since then? Yeah, I don't think it's changed much. I think the, I think the gap. Um, see, I think um, Van Til sort of gave us the structure and the and the parameters within which we operate. And part of what I wanted to do was to say, given this structure and given these parameters, 
what now do we say positively about, particularly about areas of metaphysics and epistemology? I didn't, I didn't deal much with ethics here, uh, except in, in the free will, um, uh, free will defense and the problem of evil. But that too kind of has its own metaphysical connotation, connotations. But um, I, th- I think that, that the primary gap that, that, that I see is that um, it, uh, how can I say this? Van Til gave us the basics, but there hasn't been yet someone to move forward philosophically with what Van Til gave us. And mm. what I was trying to do as a non-philosopher, I, I, you know, I don't count myself as one, and I think all the philosophers listening out there would say amen. Um, <laughs> what I was trying to do was say, here, it seems to me these are the parameters that a, within which a, a Christian philosopher needs to, to, to begin to operate. So, once we presuppose the foundation of biblical revelation and the creator-creature distinction and a revelational epistemology, what's that going to look like um, as we flesh that out in, in specific areas? And, you know, I had in mind, you know, I had in mind two or three people, um, which will remain nameless, who, who have, as far as I could tell, been sort of excited about, um, you know, what what uh, Reformed theology has to offer, what Van Til has to say, and have moved into philosophical areas, and then, um, to, to me, you know, from my vantage point, have drifted away. And, and so what I was trying to do was to say, we, you don't really have to drift away. You can stay uh, steadfast in your convictions and your theological foundations and still do good and hard um, philosophical work that would be beneficial um, to the church and, and, and also to the Christian community. And that's one of the reasons that in, in the beginning I quote, I quote Alvin Plantinga because his, his inaugural address at Notre Dame, Advice to Christian Philosophers, he, you know, he, he basically says that. He says, he says, philosophers who are Christians don't have to adopt the agenda of uh, secular philosophy, but they can have their own agenda and set their own agenda and work on their own things. And, you know, there are a lot of philosophers doing that, but again, they're doing it from the perspective of philosophy of religion or natural theology. So there's a presupposition of neutrality there at the beginning, and that's going to, that's going to end up where all the secular philosophy ends up. Um, so it's, it's still, a, it's still a significant gap. And, um, I think it, it's, you know, it takes a, a particularly, um, resourceful and, uh, ingenious person to take up this task, or, or people to take up this task, and I, I think that's what we need in 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 uh, in terms of a Christian philosophy moving forward. Uh, Jared, you did some undergraduate studies in philosophy. Do you find it uh, in academia being antagonistic to this type of approach, um, or do you find uh, that there might be a niche for this type of thinking? Yeah, that's a really good question. I thought about that as you guys were speaking, and. Um, it seems. Tell me what you think about this, because um, it's just on the fly. But it seems like there's a couple groups of people there are uh, who have a stake in this. There are philosophers themselves who um, this is their interest and they want to keep their job, etc. And then there are people outside the discipline who uh, want to maintain that uh, Christianity is academically defensible. And so while you all were talking, I was just thinking, you know, can we? Um, at least lay some of the antagonism to rest by saying what we're not saying is don't study philosophy. That may be like a pastoral question um, on an individualistic basis um, for some people who may get into it and, and stray. But for the most part, 
um, isn't it the case that we're not saying, you know, in other words, study philosophy as much as you want to, as long as you prioritize it in an orthodox way? It, do you th- is that legitimate? I think the way I say it, um, yes, it's legitimate. The way I say it to, to students in the class um, is, you know, and I, and I, I put it maybe a little uh, more bluntly than, 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 I, than I might otherwise, but what I say to students in class is, if you're going to study philosophy, good for you if the Lord calls you to that, but then I say, don't you dare do it until you have a strong, solid theological foundation. So, so mm-hmm. I, before you study a, a bit of philosophy, before you read one page, get a degree from Westminster Seminary. Because I teach, so, you know, I'm not saying only that seminary, but, I, yeah. but I'm saying that's, you've got to establish that foundation and have it established in your soul b- before you move to philosophy, because philosophy, ha- for people who are interested in such things, and I, and I know there's a vast world out there, a much vaster world out there, that, that really couldn't care less about these topics, and I, I recognize that, and that's okay. Nobody's, nobody's sinning by that. But, but for people who resonate with these kinds of disciplines and this kind of thinking, it can be seductive, and, and it, can, it can move you uh, into um, a, a mode, and I've seen this in people, I'm not speaking here abstractly, it can move you into a mode of questioning and reasoning that will eventually lead you, um, if it's possible, to deny the faith. And, and that, that, to me, is my primary concern. So, so I would rather see no one ever study philosophy and remain faithful than someone uh, dive into it and, and get so excited and, and all of a sudden begin to question everything that they, that they believe was true with respect to what Scripture teaches. Nothing wrong with questioning what you believe, but you, you don't, you don't move into the garden and say, has God really said? That, yeah. that is not an option for a person studying philosophy. And, and that's the kind of satanic deception that comes to some people, again, I'm generalizing here, but comes to some people who resonate with these kinds of disciplines. And, and so that's why I think, um, and, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being glib here, I'm not trying to be, that's why I think a foundation in Van Til, if, if that gets into your soul, is the best protection. Of course, the Spirit of the Lord, I, I understand, I'm not trying to negate any of that, but I'm saying, humanly speaking, a foundation in what Van Til has to say relative to these things, because it's so utterly biblical and, 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 um, and foundational to everything we believe theologically, that, that is uh, the, the, the best preparation that one can have for, for studying philosophical topics. Yeah, it, if I can just piggyback that on just for a second, I, there seems to be, when I was um, studying it in college, and I, I, I think this is going to be the case for some other people who are in like a university context, and even campus ministers who might be ministering to um, students studying philosophy, but there seems to be um, a, a sport aspect to philosophy, and and like a performance aspect, and when you when you get a performance aspect involved in questions on the nature of things, there can really be a, um, you know, it can puff you up. <laughs> uh, again, just to piggyback on what's already been said. Um, and, and maybe it was just my own context, but it seems like that's the case in a different way in this discipline than it is in other collegiate disciplines. Mm. I don't think there's any question. Um, 
I think, again, people who resonate with a kind of um, abstract, you know, sort of mentality, and they, they, they come into a philosophy class, and they hear the professor uh, speaking profundities about uh, metaphysics and, and modal logic and possible worlds and um, epistemology, and you get into symbolic logic and work through syllogisms and truth tables, you can begin to think that you've got a grasp on the nature of truth that only you, you and, and, and those other, you know, the other minority who are in your class and your professor, you're the only ones who really get it now. Finally, the world's been opened up. And see, I think that's a parody of, of what, what the Lord himself gives us in biblical revelation. You, you get that grasp on the truth, first of all, by what God has said. And then you begin to think about that carefully. You can begin to think about that carefully using good philosophical tools, but always standing on the foundation of biblical revelation. But without that, you know, and I've seen this time and time again, you know, people who, you know, youngsters, I call them now, who come home from college and they've had two or three philosophy courses and boy, they've got the jargon down now and they can, you know, they can dismiss you with a wave of the hand and, and one, one or two uh, sentences and you can tell it's just a sentence that their professor has, they're parroting their professor in class. And, and, and not only can you tell it, but it's fairly superficial. But in their mind, since they've just learned this, this is the way you begin to dismiss Christianity. That's what's dangerous. And that's, that's what I think needs to be, um, I think that needs to be flagged. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's uh, not a warning uh, to, to move into the direction of anti-intellectualism, but it is a warning to remain faithful to God's word and the very foundation, the only foundation upon which we can stand. Now, at the at the time that you wrote this book, Mueller's uh, post Reformation Reform Dogmatics had recently come out, and he had done a tremendous service to the church in rehabilitating our view of the Protestant scholastics and and really exposing uh, faithfully and truthfully what they were up to and uh, the depth to which they were working. Um, did did uh, Mueller's work have an influence upon uh, your book here, Reasons for Faith? And are you working in uh, similar territory? Did this have an influence upon you? Sure, it did. Um, you know, since since I've gotten a hold of those and and uh, read through them, and, I, and because of my my own um, teaching here at the seminary, I've I've concentrated more on 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 the third and fourth uh, volumes, but. Um, yeah, when when uh, you know when Mueller's work came out, and I, I began to look through that um, to to inform my own uh, teaching in, in the doctrine of God, um, began to see significant um, overlap between what what was much of what was going on in the seventeenth century and and what Van Til was saying. Um, th- there are some differences, um, and some of those are are, are um, you know culturally uh, understood, and then some are just just some basic differences, but. But overall, um, you know, this, this emphasis in the beginning of the, of the book, I, I actually use uh, some of Turretin's discussion because this emphasis on the relationship of faith to reason and philosophy to theology is not something that, you know, only we have thought about. And it's just a new idea that's come up in the 21st century, but it's actually something these guys wrestled with in depth and actually put out some, some uh, I think, very helpful for the most part um, Parameters in which to think about those things. So, so as I began to read um, what what Mueller was doing, and and uh, you know he, he makes the point that I think is uh, is is uh, um, obvious to many of us is that f- theology in the 17th century and beyond, and certainly before, 
theology really can't do its work now without um, the significant use, in some cases, of, of philosophical jargon. That's not a problem. We don't, we don't need to be afraid, about that, uh, afraid of that. That's a good thing, as long as we recognize that the jargon itself is what it is, and, and that when we articulate these things, we articulate them in a, in a, in a way that's consistent with uh, biblical truth. And that's what um, that's what was happening in in the seventeenth uh, century as many of the reform began to work through and and write uh, systematically on some of the areas that um, Calvin and others had had dealt with in the sixteenth century. And it, to me, it was it's just a fascinating study to see how these guys began. I think Muller makes the point that a lot of the reformed scholastics they were eclectic in their use of philosophy. They'd pick a you know, a, a, an area here and a and and a, an idea there and a concept here, and they were just kind of bringing them together as those things suited their theological discipline. That's that's really the way to get, to get at it. Um, you know, you pick and choose, and you bring them in, and once you bring them in to a theological context, then you have to make sure, as best you can, that none of the um, uh, baggage um, that is detrimental to theology comes in with the terminology. But one, once you do that, and you incorporate it becomes very useful to us in, in, in the way that we talk and think. When we, we talk about the Trinity as, as one in essence, three in persons, one in usia, three hypostases. You can't make that statement without um, in, engaging in, um, in philosophical jargon. And, and we need to know what we mean by those things and define those things biblically. So very helpful to see that, um, that, that theology in, in its best form has not been uh, afraid of and certainly not uh, antithetical to uh, philosophy, but has incorporated it as as a person sees fit according to what Scripture teaches and, and without compromising or negotiating biblical truth. Yeah, and certainly Van Til used uh, terms that he was familiar with from his philosophical training. Uh, that That got him into trouble sometimes, but that's not to say that he wasn't using them correctly, uh, but he had his critics like Jesse DeBoer <laughs> in the Calvin Forum who didn't uh, take too kindly to the use of that jargon. But we need to be very clear, and I think Van Til was uh, in this regards, insofar as as we uh, need to explain how we're using. So when he said concrete universal, he was very clear about what he was doing, but even though that was a term that came from a number of idealists, right? Yeah, that's that's right. And see, you know, it's interesting because in in the in the Stoker article, which I again would commend, he he sort of, you know, he's careful in how he says it, but he's got a a couple of of good sized paragraphs on this very issue of of how Van Til has used terminology, and Stoker says, of course, we can use that terminology, but he says um, we have to make sure that we're not incorporating with the terminology itself, that we're not incorporating yeah. the philosophical baggage that comes with it. And, and Stoker, you know, he comes as close as anyone is saying to Van, to, to Van Tiller, a couple places he says where, you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't have used those terms. And then Stoker says, you know, it may, maybe what you have to do in some cases, do what Dorvier did and just invent words, um, you know, ne- neologisms or something like that. You just, you just decide to invent a word and use it. Um, and and I don't know, um, you know, there, it's always a, a kind of a context call as to how much you do that. But um, but but when Van Til was doing his apologetic, he was he was he was attempting to defend the faith against any of the philosophical objections and philosophical 
syncretisms that were out there. And so he was using the terms of the people to whom he was speaking in his, in his writing and, and in other places. So that's why his dissertation, which was on uh, absolute idealism, he's using uh, the terminology of absolute idealism and then later out of pragmatism in order to communicate with the people who have bought into those philosophies and in Van Til's view have syncretized that with theology so that some Christians were saying absolute idealism is a Christian philosophy. And Van Til was saying, I don't, I don't think it can be. There's no way you can think that way. So, yeah, exactly. He was trying to use the terminology that was out there of the people to whom he was speaking and then to reorient and, re, and, 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 uh, and redefine the terms that he uses. So that, so the concrete universal, universal of the, you know, of the, of the Hegelian, uh, Van Til is saying, if, if you want, if you want a universal that's not abstract like Kant's, but that is actually in history, concrete, and yet at the same time is not, um, itself caught up in the diversity of, 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 uh, of, mo- of the movement of history so that it changes the minute you, Notice what it is. If you want that, he's saying to the Hegelians, the only we're going to get that is in the, in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and he is the concrete universal because he's not abstract, and he is in history, and he's not, uh, he's not uh, someone who's uh, changing with the, with the flow of, of time. I think it's a brilliant way to use the language. Same, same thing that he did with, with the notion of transcendental. Um, those terms are very useful if you take them into the, the proper theological context and give them the proper definition and use. Isn't uh, Stoker the one in there in Jerusalem and As- Athens in that essay that he coins his own term phanerotic epistemology, or is that a different essay in the Jerusalem and Athens? But no, it's exactly, exactly yeah. what But that's just a Greek term, but I think it captures the, uh, the essence of what he's trying to say rightly. I mean, we, we speak now just in terms of revelational epistemology, but uh, it, he was suggesting that as a as a technical term to describe what it means uh, for us to have our knowledge analogically to uh, the covenant Lord. So I, I think that's 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 a good example of the flip side of terms of using a neologism that isn't necessarily or unnecessarily confusing. Yeah, that's right, and that that's what he was trying to do yeah. there. Stoker had a lot of interest and knowledge of phenomenology, so he was kind of using those kinds of terms to articulate what he thinks a basic uh, fundamental Christian epistemology ought to be, and I think he was exactly right on that Mm. point. Another giant uh, or large figure in your book here is Thomas Aquinas. (laughs) No pun intended. Um, But um, now he's both here... In, in some ways, a protagonist as all, and also an antagonist here in the chapters on epistemology and metaphysics. How, uh, how do we understand Thomas, and, and where does he fall in the legacy of, uh, of Christian thought, do you think? Well, um, I think, first of all, you know, we, we have to say that, um, that Christ, Christian theology uh, in the 21st century um, cannot be uh, done or understood uh, without some kind of influence from Thomas. Um, he, he just did so much, and so much of what he did came into the Reform context, again, as, as Muller makes clear and others have made clear, that, um, that there's, there's much in Thomas that is, is, um, is, is useful to a Reformed theology. I mean, I think we have to remember that, um, you know, that, that Thomas wrote in the 13th century. Um, so it's prior to the Reformation, 
Um, and so there's no Reformation there, and Thomas is working these ideas and doctrines out in, in, a, in a far different context than, than of course, Calvin or, or, or Luther or certainly the 17th century Reformed were doing. So, there, so for that reason, um, because of his, his, vast in, his vast influence, the Reformed would, um, would take a good bit from Thomas and incorporate it into their own um, theological ideas. Having said that, and so what I do in, in the book, one, one, the first, one of the first things I wanted to do was to try to show um, where, in, in particular, Thomas is very helpful when it comes to a revelational epistemology. Now, Thomas wouldn't have called it that, and um, he, he has different ways of, of, of saying uh, w- what I'm saying, and there would be areas of, of disagreement, uh, of course, but but Thomas was clear, I think, and, and I, I use uh, particularly um, a couple of um, you know not as well known um, uh, writings of Thomas uh, in, in, in the way that in the way that he works out his epistemology. Thomas was was clear that you you cannot have an epistemolo- epistemological theory that's divorced from metaphysics. Um, what that means is. Um, you cannot say, you cannot ask the question, what and how do we know, without having some idea of what reality is. So what, what Thomas was trying to do was say reality is created, given its createdness, this is the way that we know. We know by virtue of things um, that are the way they are because God has made them that way. Now that's, you know, that's exactly right. So that's that's the first thing I do is try to say, um, this this is very helpful, and we can use this, and we can move forward in this. But then um, I, I move into a section where I I, uh, I, I give a critique of of, uh, of of theological predication. That is, how is it that we can speak about a God who is so transcendent and so holy? Other, how can that be? And I try to make the point that um, because of Thomas's view of simplicity, which is a simplicity based on natural theology rather than biblical revelation. Because of his view of that, it becomes then kind of um, all-controlling in everything else that Thomas says about God, such that even theological predication becomes difficult to articulate from Thomas's perspective because of his understanding of God's simplicity. Now, now again, um, in, in my view, Thomas was clear about a couple of things. He was clear about his method. His method was that there were some things that we can know about God that we don't have to use biblical revelation in order to know them. Everyone knows them. We all get this. If we don't get it, we can get it. We don't have to open our Bibles. Then there are other things that we uh, can only know by opening our Bibles. He was clear about that method. But then, um, he, given that method, there are some things Thomas says where I say, no, you shouldn't have said that. That would have been a good day um, not to get up for morning prayers, just stay in bed, don't write anything. And, and then, there are other places uh, where he speaks, and he he is um, fully engaged with the biblical material, and that that stuff can be very helpful and useful. So I think um, you know, as I say in class, Thomas doesn't wear a black hat. We've got people who wear black hats, you know, that the bad guys, the good guys. Thomas is not black hat. Thomas has a gray hat, and it's you know, it's part white, it's part gray, and it just depends on um, you know a person's perspective as to how gray it is or how light it is. Uh, but I think Thomas can be useful. But I, I think in in my own reading um, of uh, particularly in areas of doctrine of God, which I deal with in the metaphysics section, I think Thomas has been 
less helpful in um, in the way that we articulate much of what we do about our understanding of God. Yeah. Okay. That's that's helpful. And um, related to that, kind of bringing the 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 Aquinas element and then the the Reformed theology element together and, and taking from the modern con- or the current context. Um, you talk a lot about Alvin Plantinga, who we, who we mentioned before. Um, he has this thing called the Aquinas Calvin model. And um, could you explain a little bit how he understands the um, census divinitatis, the sense of divinity, how that relates to the Aquinas Calvin model um, and how you interact with his thought on this question? Because you, you interact with him on a few things, but maybe this in particular. And again, you know, from this is another uh, Christian thinker. Um, so it, it's going to be a mixed bag. It's not going to be somebody like Hume, obviously, who's, who's not coming from a theological or who, yeah, Hume's not coming from a theological context. So planning an Aquinas, I think, um, need some qualification on these things. So I guess first, Aquinas Calvin model, how do you interact with that? One of the reasons I I wanted to um, interact with Plantinga is because I've done a lot of uh, work in his work and have uh, a tremendous and immense uh, respect uh, for the man uh, personally. Anyone who studies philosophy knows his influence and his stature. And um, so um, I I think that has to be said, first of all, that uh, he's revolutionized much of what goes on in Christian philosophy today. And um, that's a significant um, accomplishment uh, of his that that in some ways has uh, has been very good. Uh, what what Plantinga in in my uh, section on epistemology, what what Plantinga is uh, is a, has attempted to do in his career um, is to lay out an, an epistemology, a theory of knowledge that includes. Uh, what he what he sees to be Calvin's view of the sensus divinitatis, which is the sense of deity um, that Paul speaks about in Romans one eighteen to twenty, that the knowledge of God that we all have, um, and and um, what what Plantinga does um, is he sort of just kind of merges Calvin and, and Thomas um, in in my own in terms of their understanding of the sensus divinitatis. In my own reading of of those two, um, I remember long ago when I was uh, I took my first course on Aquinas um, uh, at a university here in Pennsylvania. I, I, um, I began to look at, at uh, Thomas and his commentary on Romans uh, particularly, and, and Thomas is, is clear um, in, his, uh, in his commentary on Romans that, uh, that, that, that Paul is not speaking there uh, specifically about knowledge of the true God, but he's speaking about the light of the intellect. Um, so, I think uh, planning a maybe uh, um, reading Thomas differently than I am, or there, I'm sure there are places in Thomas where he talks about a kind of sense because of Thomas's inconsistent method. He's going to have inconsistent um, uh, phraseology depending on whether he's standing on the Bible or on his, on his own reason. Um, but, but Calvin, uh, Calvin is clear that what, what the census divinitatis is, is actual knowledge of God. Um, now, what, what Plantinga does in his epistemology is that he sees the sensus divinitatis as, or the sense of deity as a capacity for knowing God, so that, so that he sees Calvin teaching that everyone has the capacity to know God, and then, if placed in certain circumstances, could then come 
to know God in a way that would be both rational and uh, without need of evidence. Um, and and the, the, the point I try to make, it's a technical point, but it's an important theological point, is that if, to the extent that Calvin's following Paul, which I think he is, uh, pretty much verbatim, to that extent what Calvin is saying is not that all people have a capacity for knowing God, but that all people know God. They know the true God. And it's, it's by virtue of that knowledge and the suppression of it that they are rendered without excuse uh, before God at, at the judgment, Romans one twenty. So if that's the case then, if it's not now a capacity to know God, but actual knowledge of God, that's going to change the way we think about epistemology. Because now we see people in the world, all people, by virtue of being made in the image of God, all people who know God and suppress that knowledge. And that suppression of the knowledge is going to take on different forms, uh, surely, of idolatry, as Paul um, makes clear in Romans one twenty three and 25, it's going to take on uh, different um, views of knowledge and, um, and different aspects of knowledge that are going to uh, work themselves out in terms of idolatry. But that idolatry has a foundation in true knowledge. See, now that's the epistemological point. It has a foundation in true knowledge, not in some kind of uh, capacity that may or may not be filled. So that's going to change, significantly change, in my view, the way you think about the problem of knowledge, uh, whether or not someone knows God or just has the capacity to know God. So I interact with planning a bit there and um, and try to reorient the discussion in that way. But but let me just say, um, having said that, while I disagree with the way he, he works that out in specifics, um, N- nobody was talking about the census divinitatis in philosophy until planning it came in and, and brought it in. So, so it's uh, it was it was really fun to be able to write this in a kind of philosophical way um, as as planning a sort of open the door to the discussion and then to begin to discuss those kinds of things in, in a philosophical way. So, uh, planning has done done great work in that sense. Um, just you know, my, my view some. Um, I think, um, theological issues that need to be, uh, significantly shored up. Yeah. I should mention, um, the, the, I had so much fun in college reading, uh, warranted Christian belief, which is where he, um, does a lot of work on this. And, um, also just to the listeners, uh, if you want to, uh, delve more deeply into these issues, um, you have a review in the Westminster Journal of Warranted Christian Belief where you go into um, the specifics on the model and other things. Um, so if they want to follow up on that, I, I would think that would be a good resource. You can read his dissertation too. After also all that. Dissertation. If you can yeah. uh, get that through Interlibrary Loan or through UMI, I don't think it's called UMI anymore. But um, if you're on the Westminster campus or have access to uh, the databases, you can also get an electronic copy. Yeah, I think um, um, Jared, you would you would know this, but I believe it's the case that some of those articles were put under my um, faculty uh, articles on online. So you might be able just to go there to the Westminster faculty page and look at the list of articles. And some of those, I think, are links to those very articles that you can get. Yeah, that's yeah. right. We'll put a link to that. Um, just the faculty page. No, you're right. In the show notes. You're exactly right. I'm looking at them right now. Yeah. We'll, we'll put those in the episode description. Good. Now, um, you know, we we spoke about uh, the problem of knowledge and Plantinga. What about the problem of evil? And you you treat in in the final section here of the book, uh, Plantinga's free will defense. What is that? And um, what what might you say about it? Well, yeah, um, the 
uh, the, a couple things I wanted to do um, in in writing about philosophy in the service of theology. I wanted to try to show how this might be, how this might look if philosophy was in the service of theology. So one of the things I did, for example, in metaphysics was dealing with um, uh, possible worlds and and, and uh, semantics like that to to try to show that that um, if we want to incorporate these kinds of philosophical ideas, there is a way to do that biblically that um, doesn't compromise biblical truth and also might, emphasis on might, might provide some clarity for those in a philosophical context who are dealing with these things. So that's when I began to introduce um, uh, notions of essential and covenantal properties with respect to God. And then what I wanted to do in the section on implications and application was was to show how we might begin to think more um, Christianly about things like the problem of evil. Now, um, planning as uh, planning as evaluation of the so-called logical problem of evil, which is which is basically uh, that there's an incompatibility between the existence of God as we understand it to be good and omniscient and uh, omnipotent. There's an incompatibility between God's existence and the existence of evil. It's not a contradiction. It's not an outright contradiction, but it's an incompatibility. And what Planning wanted to do in the logical problem of evil was to show. He just he says clearly, "I'm not here offering a theodicy. I just want to offer defense. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stave off the attack. It's a defense, and the defense is that um, these things uh, could be, as a matter of fact, compatible. And a couple of philosophers have said that planning is. Uh, uh, logical problem of his free will defense basically ended the discussion on logical problem of evil. And I, and I think, you know, it might be a bit of an overstatement, but it is true that most philosophers move to what's called the evidential problem of evil. Not many more now deal with the logical problem of evil. But the, the problem as I, as I saw it in planning his defense, and he, he recognized this later on because someone called it to his attention, but the problem in, in planning as free will de- defense is that it requires an understanding of middle knowledge, which is uh, that the um, that 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 the human creature is uh, so free, so that uh, it would be it is not possible for God to have control over His decisions in any way, shape, or form. And because of that, because of that freedom, planning says. Um, uh, the the problem of evil has its uh, source uh, directly and solely in the decision of Adam to to eat the fruit. In other words, what Planning had um, articulated there, and again he found this out later, not at the time he was working through it, but he articulated a Molinist understanding of um, of God's knowledge. Uh, meaning that that middle, that there's that God has middle knowledge, and that middle knowledge is uh, is is a counterfactual knowledge. What every free creature would do in every possible circumstance. So it's middle between God's free and necessary knowledge, which the Reformed have all have have always rejected for good reason. Um, and and the reasons are are so um, uh, difficult to go into in any detail. Um, I don't think we can deal with them here, but um, in, in what, what I wanted to do then was to say, okay, here's planning as um, a solution to the problem of evil. And again, he's he's being very modest about it. I'm just I'm just erecting a fence here. It's it's only a defense. I'm not offering a theodicy. I'm not saying why there is evil. I'm saying that this objection doesn't work. Um, but in order to accomplish that, 
in my view, as a, as a Reformed Christian, he compromises the doctrine of God, and that's too high a price to pay. So, so what I do in, in, in offering what I call a Reformed free will defense is I offer a statement that itself assumes the existence of God and the uh, introduction of evil in the world, and, and at the same time um, doesn't, um, is not itself incompatible with the problem of evil. In other words, I use planning a structure, but I introduce a reformed uh, proposition into the equation in order to show that if we're going to be biblically grounded, we can we can do this, we can argue this way without compromising on on God's own character. Now, probably as I've talked about this, people are are either asleep or thinking, "Boy, this is this is very complicated." And it is very complicated. And it can get very deep and 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 I don't give the impression the problem of evil is just a philosophical problem. It's, it's the problem in apologetics, and I think it's the problem because it's both philosophically sophisticated, but it's also pastorally significant because everyone experiences that. So it's, it's not, I'm not, it, it was not what I was trying to do there in a reform free will defense was not just simply say, here's how we look at it philosophically or solve it philosophically, but here's how we think about it biblically, and here's how we can begin to understand the relationship of God's own sovereign character in which he ordains whatsoever comes to pass, and as well, the fact that when Adam chooses to eat the fruit, he does that responsibly. Both things are true. And he's not absolutely free because there is no absolutely free creature once God creates. He's sovereign over that creature in every detail. Uh, But he is still responsible. Adam is still responsible for what he's done. So what I'm trying to do then is to show here's the application of doing philosophy and yet being uh, informed fundamentally and significantly by biblical revelation, and and to me, it's a it's a fairly short step and a fairly easy step to to do that. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that planning a titles his own approach, uh, reformed epistemology, um, and again with all all the respect due to planning a, but um, I think we can nuance that that term a little bit given what you said about the Molinist um, underpinnings and some of the other methodological considerations that he has there. Yeah, well, the, the, the moniker Reformed got dropped pretty quickly. He started out with that, and then um, I think through various discussions and maybe possibly a little pressure, he decided to, to, to nix that because it excluded, seemed to exclude too many people. So that's when he moved from Reformed epistemology to what he called a proper function approach to epistemology, and there he just um, tries to go uh, with what he calls a kind of naturalized epistemology. Um, But yeah, initially he was calling it reform because he saw himself uh, in line with, um, as he wrote in one of his articles, he's in line with Calvin and Bob Inc. and Kuyper, and he thought uh, even even Karl Barth. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe to uh, start wrapping things up, uh, you talk about um, speaking of complicated, possible world semantics uh, in the book, and we we mentioned it uh, in this episode too. Uh, and we can do, we could do tons of episodes on that. Maybe we can um, think about that for philosophy for theologians, the other much neglected <laughs> show on here. Um, but I guess it's it on possible world semantics and, and modal logic. It's it's kind of the same question that we've been asking on a lot of these things. Um, how should reformed thinkers think about possible worlds, necessity, possibility? Uh, can we use the tools of modal logic and, and maybe the language of possible worlds? Um, or is there there's some way, um, and, and in some sense, does modal logic intrinsically compromise some of our reformed convictions? Is, is there 
some way that we can navigate between those two things? I hope there is because I because I used it some. Um, I, I think in in my in my view the language of uh, some of um, possible world semantics is useful for the Christian because um, what the um, what what the philosophers are trying to do with possible world semantics is to negotiate modalities and the modalities that they are interested in are the standard ones of necessity, possibility, including contingency, and the impossible. So um, when when you when you begin to get down to those three modalities and think about those as a Christian, you can ask the question: What is it that is absolutely necessary? And, um, you know, there are various answers given to that among philosophers and even among Christian um, philosophers. One, one of Plantinga's arguments against God's simplicity is uh, presupposes a kind of platonic view of absolute necessity, which I think is, is not, um, not suitable for, for a Christian thinker. Um, but but when, we, when I ask the question, what is it that's absolutely necessary, there's only one answer that, that, that can be given from a Christian perspective, and that is God. God is necessary relative to nothing. That's what I mean by absolutely. In other words, there's no world, and a world here is not a physical thing, but it's a state of affairs. There's no world in which God cannot exist. He exists necessarily. Now, now theology has always held that, um, so that's nothing new. But then we can ask the question, okay, given, given that that is all that is absolutely necessary, what is it that is possible? Well, there we get into some very deep um, uh, and difficult discussions, but we can say at least this much, um, creation is possible. Uh, creation is possible because God created. And so if it were impossible, he wouldn't have done it, couldn't have done it. That's a whole other topic. But um, creation is possible, which means creation is a contingency, and everything in creation is a contingency. But then the philosopher will say, well, wait a minute, do you mean to tell me that um, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is not absolutely necessary, but it's a contingency? To which I want to say, yeah, that's what I mean to tell you. Um, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is um, what the the uh, theologians of the past would call a contingent necessity, or something um, that is necessary um, hypothetically, and they don't mean hypothetically as theoretical, but hypothesis. Uh, upon the hypo, the foundation of something else, it's necessary, and that something else is God's creative activity. So, so anything that we have as uh, created beings that is in our world, now I'm talking about our actual physical world, anything that we have here that is necessary to us, that we can't see otherwise, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, that necessity has its foundation in God, and, and, is, and God alone is absolutely necessary. God is not 2 equals 4. So in, in that sense, then, I think we can divide our thought if we talk about the creator-creature distinction, or what I call the I-me-I-cone distinction, that is the I am of God, absolutely necessary, and the icon of reality, which is the image. Icon means image, so that everything that is now has a dependent character like an image does, and yet reflects that which it images. If we think of it that, we can, we can begin to divide up the entirety of reality in terms of the necessity and the contingent, or what I call the necessity and the covenantal. And now we can begin to think about things in what I think are biblical categories 
without compromising on God's aseity, his absolute necessity, his independence, and at the same time understanding that this God who is independent really and truly acts with and reacts to his creation and his creatures without in any way compromising his aseity. Both things taking place. And I think this helps us, I think that kind of view helps us to flesh out um, just, just what the creator-creature distinction means. And I think we're helped there by uh, possible world semantics. Now, you know, we're, not, we're using it in, in a very sort of general way, but still we're incorporating those things, I think, to help us explain some of the realities of, uh, of, of what Scripture teaches us. Yeah, this this may be um, this is kind of a technical question. It's been a while since I um, got into modal logic, but um, you you mentioned uh, you know hypothetical necessity and there's um, you know necessary contingency. Does one of the ways? Um, uh, okay, let me rephrase. Can we speak about that? Those types, given again, this is technical, but the the S five. Um, version of modal logic that, um, as far as I remember, basically says if something is necessary, it's it's necessarily necessary. So you don't have different levels of nece- necessity and possibility. So if something is possible, then it's necessarily possible. Does and and maybe I'm getting that wrong, but if I'm getting that right, does that conflict conflict with some of the different levels that you may be talking about, or am I thinking about that um, wrongly? No, I, you're exactly right. I mean, many of the philosophers accept the S5 model, but see, there, there's still a debate on whether S5 or S4 or something uh, besides mm-hmm. a better way to think about possible world semantics. And I don't even have to engage that debate or enter into it. I think I think S5 is more biblically correct because it says that which is necessary is necessary across all possible worlds. But w- even when you say that, you have to define a possible world in terms of the creator-creature distinction, which is that mm-hmm. God is absolutely necessary, and creation is not say, but is always and fundamentally dependent. So one of the reasons I didn't even engage in that debate is, number one, because philosophers aren't sure what they think about it. I mean, they're sure what they themselves think, but the, there's no uniformity across um, metaphysicians as to which model they want to adopt. And number two, I don't think it's that helpful for uh, Christians to have to engage in in those kinds of discussions when philosophers are not even sure, or if they are sure, they have a wrong view of what possibility and necessity is. So that's why I just um, define it, uh, try to define it Christianly according to Scripture and just move on from that without even getting into the S5 or whatever model to use in, in uh, possible world semantics. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, and it's it's quite useful to discuss these things, and, and I appreciate uh, the work not only that you've uh, done in this book, but also um, by by speaking about these things and presenting them to us uh, on this program, I think it's useful to see an example of somebody working through philosophical subjects uh, from from uh, what we would argue is a proper theological approach. So again, the book here, Reasons for Faith, Philosophy in the Service of Theology, published by PNR. Uh, it's still available uh, through the Westminster Bookstore. It's going to be available for a long time. But thanks, Dr. Oliphant, for joining us. This was a great discussion. Thanks for having me, Camden. We miss you out here, but yeah. uh, glad to serve the church out there in the Midwest. Thank you. Uh, what's on the What's on the docket? Do you uh, have any projects currently um, in the works? I know you're on sabbatical, so I assume you're up to something. 
Yeah, I've been on study leave and was able to submit uh, a book on covenantal apologetics that uh, I hear is uh, due out in July. So I'm glad to have that uh, finished and behind me and uh, also able to um, get two or three book reviews behind me. And I'm currently uh, working on uh, annotations and um, uh, um, footnotes and things for Van Til's Common Grace in the Gospel. So hopefully that'll be out in the next. Yes, finally. That's uh, I'm so uh, delighted to hear that that's going to be coming out. Uh, we get to see another book in that series. Uh, having the annotations and in uh, the footnoting is just so helpful. <laughs> Have you found that Common Grace in the Gospel is is along the same lines as the other ones you've done? Is it more difficult? Uh, I'm... It's it's more difficult in some ways because it's one of those neglected aspects of Van Til's thought, and there's so much out there on it. It's uh, I've got to hone it in and make sure that. Um, I'm getting the substance of what's going on without getting sidetracked, but um, it's just it's just a phenomenal collection of essays that Van Til's written. I would I would commend it to anyone to pick up now and not wait for the annotations. It's just a great piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So uh, get a hold of that, and also look forward to the new volume coming out in the future, as well as a new title on covenantal apologetics. Delighted to hear about that. Of course, you can find out more information about Dr. Oliphant as well as uh, Westminster Theological Seminary at wts.edu. And you can find us online at reformedforum.org, where you'll find information about all of our programs and uh, future and upcoming projects. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at mail at reformedforum.org or tweet us at reformedforum. Uh, Dr. Oliphant's actually online on Twitter, too, so I should say, is it K.S. Oliphant? Uh, help me, Jerry. <laughs> no. <laughs> S. Oliphant? It's Scott Oliphant. And by the way, he he tweets. It's not me doing all the tweets. It's not. So I want to dispel any the real The real Oliphant. You need that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Verified account. <laughs> yeah, check it out. There's actually good stuff up there. So, um, yeah, all that is available online and uh, we'll include links uh, to the articles that we've mentioned in the episode description. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.